stand for the reading of God's word. Our Old Testament passage is Esther 8, 1 through 14. That same day, King Xerxes gave Queen Esther the estate of Haman, the enemy of the Jews. And Mordecai came into the presence of the king, for Esther had told him how he was related to her. The king took off his signet ring, which he had reclaimed from Haman, and presented it to Mordecai. And Esther appointed him over Haman's estate. Esther again pleaded with the king, falling at his feet and weeping. She begged him to put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he had devised against the Jews. Then the king extended the gold scepter to Esther, and she arose and stood before him. If it pleases the king, she said, and if he regards me with favor and thinks it is the right thing to do, and if he is pleased with me, let an order be written overruling the dispatches that Haman, son of Hamadatha, the Agagite, devised and wrote to destroy the Jews in all the king's provinces. For how can I bear to see disaster fall on my people? How can I bear to see the destruction of my family? King Xerxes replied to Queen Esther and to Mordecai the Jew, Because Haman attacked the Jews, I have given his estate to Esther, and they have impaled him on the pole he set up. Now write another decree in the king's name and behalf of the Jews, as seems best to you, and seal it with the king's signet ring. For no document written in the king's name and sealed with his ring can be revoked. At once the royal secretaries were summoned. On the 23rd day of the third month, the month of Sivan, they wrote out all Mordecai's orders to the Jews and to the satraps, governors, and nobles of the 127 provinces stretching from India to Kush. These orders were written in the script of each province and the language of each people, and also to the Jews in their own script and language. Mordecai wrote in the name of King Xerxes, sealed the dispatches with the king's signet ring, and sent them by mounted couriers who rode fast horses, especially bred for the king. The king's edict granted the Jews in every city the right to assemble and protect themselves, to destroy, kill, and annihilate the armed men of any nationality or province who might attack them and their women and children, and to plunder the property of their enemies. The day appointed for the Jews to do this in all the provinces of King Xerxes was the 13th day of the 12th month, the month of Adar. A copy of the text of the edict was to be issued as law in every province and made known to the people of every nationality so that the Jews would be ready on that day to avenge themselves on their enemies. The couriers riding the royal horses went out, spurred on by the king's command, and the edict was issued in the citadel of Susa. The grass withers and the flowers fall. The word of God stands forever. Our New Testament reading out of 2 Thessalonians chapter 1. We ought always to thank God for you, brothers and sisters, and rightly so, because your faith is growing more and more, and the love all of you have for one another is increasing. Therefore, among God's churches, we boast about your perseverance and faith in all the persecutions and trials you are enduring. All this is evidence that God's judgment is right, and as a result, you will be counted worthy of the kingdom of God for which you are suffering. God is just. He will pay back trouble to those who trouble you and give relief to you who are troubled and to us as well. This will happen when the Lord Jesus is revealed from heaven in blazing fire with his powerful angels. He will punish those who do not know God and do not obey the gospel of our Lord Jesus. They will be punished with everlasting destruction and shut out from the presence of the Lord and from the glory of his might on the day he comes to be glorified in his holy people and to be marveled at among all those who have believed. This includes you because you believed our testimony to you. The word of the Lord. 
One of our customs, you've been here so you don't need to be reminded, but if you're new, is before we have the sermon, is to give you a chance to interact with God. You may do that a lot, you may do that infrequently, but there's, a, there's always an invitation to start, and you always have to start wherever you are. So it doesn't matter where you are, you start from there. One of the prayers that I've sometimes come to make, because I'm a kid who, when I was growing up, and it didn't go away when I got older, and someone said, what do you want for your birthday, or what do you want for Christmas? As time went on, I got past like six. I never knew. All it did is stress me out. What I want is for you to find something for me that I didn't even know I needed or wanted, and you gave it to me, and then I got it, and I was like, I wouldn't have thought of this. And then as time went on, I thought, this is fantastic. I would never have thought to give this to myself or ask this for myself. I thought I wanted to stretch Armstrong or something. (laughs) So, and I have wanted to stretch Armstrong, and I had to stretch Armstrong. Take a moment and ask God, saying, knowing what you know of me, you know where I'm dying inside right now. You know where I feel so dead inside right now. You know where I feel so... Or maybe you feel excited. Give me what I need in such a way that I can receive it and not swat you away. Take a moment and ask him to do that, if you will. Or you can check your phone, whatever. Lord, this is a serious business, but it's meant to be a sweet one as well. So will you hear your people and notice their groans, their sighings, even the things they don't even know how to put words on? Hear them as they make their petitions to you silently. We're asking, since we belong to you, since we are your people, the sheep of your pasture, the ones you want to feed, the ones you cannot give up, we're asking you, Lord, bring joy to us. Give us a pervasive sense of well-being so that we see you aright, so that we get our desires realigned so that the dead places in us, the brown and dying grass in us would be sprinkled and watered and turned green. Make us vibrant. Make us new. Where we need it brings soothing. Lord, I don't have the slightest idea how to address every person in here. I barely know how to address myself. But I'm asking right now, because of your love, about which I am certain for these dear ones in front of me and to my left and to my right, 
Oh, let your compassion move you to address them healingly, to bring restoration, to bring resuscitation, to bring renewal, to bring eyes blinked wide open. Let us see marvelous things about you. When I open my mouth, let words come and make a demonstration of your spirit's power. Come be with us. We plead with you. In Jesus' name, amen. This week, it happened to me on two occasions, and so therefore it has to be in the sermon that I was driving in an automobile. And into the road appeared a small furry creature of bushy tail facing insuperable odds as he confronted my car. He stood there all 2.2 ounces of him, 2 pounds, 2 ounces of him. Yes, and as uh, Sandy has noted here, there was a certain erraticness in him. He stood there at first, staring at the car, not sure what to do. But then, as you have witnessed in many occasions in your life, this little squirrel, not the animated kind that can talk like Rocky and Bullwinkle, darts to the right and then darts to the left as if he's on methamphetamines. <laughs> racked with uncertainty about what to do because he is in such an unbearable predicament. I'm nearly at a stop here. I'm waiting to see what happens because I have played this game before. I do not wish for the demise of these little squirrels. I have nothing against them unless they get in our house or in the attic or something. And so I'm waiting to see what will happen. And you never know, even though my heart for them is large, you never know. They may go to the right and you think you're clear and you go. And then last second, they dart right under your tire. What are you doing? Why do you hate yourself, squirrel? But on these two occasions, the darting zigzagging, coked-up squirrels were liberated. They safely got to the side. I did not run over them. My conscience was free. Hopefully, they later told their squirrel friends about the deliverance the Lord had given. They had encountered an unbelievable deliverance in the midst of an unbearable kind of disaster in their little tiny squirrel life. You've heard me say before, a friend of mine who had a very lucrative business, and I asked him, how on earth did you get into that? He said, hey, buddy, I'll tell you what. Every now and again, blind pig finds an acorn. And he was excited to have been the blind pig with such good fortune, loading his pockets up with acorns. One of the contentions of the scripture and one of the themes of the book of Esther is that the same 
principle and the same hidden concern that watched out for that little erratic squirrel that did not know his right hand from his left or his right paw from his left paw? I don't know. And the one who leads blind pigs to find acorns and the one who knows the number of hairs on your head, the one who is paying a considerable amount of attention to detail is the one who is keeping his promises because he keeps his people in his heart. He keeps the promises that he has made from long ago in his mind because he keeps his people in his heart and he cannot bear for them to know disaster. And so he is working in all the details in ways visible and ways invisible, in ways where he could get credit and in ways where he might not get named. But it is all in the service of making sure that what would be unbearable for him, like it is unbearable for Esther to imagine her people being destroyed, will not come to pass. It would be unbearable for him to lose one of whom he had been given. It would be unbearable for him to not let all of his promises be answered, yes, in Christ. It would be unbearable for him to have promised to Abraham that I will make you a nation that is splendorous and numerous as the stars in the sky and as packed as the little grains of sand on the beaches of C-30A. It would be intolerable, unbearable, unthinkable for me to have promised that and then to let my people somehow just get washed away in a river of my forgetfulness in a tide of the hatefulness of the nations who are their enemies. God comes in the midst of unbearable disaster, in the macro way and in the micro way, with an unbelievable deliverance because he pays considerable attention to little details. Previously, on Stranger Things, that's how we've been starting these reviews because we're jumping two chapters at a time. In this book of Esther, Haman, this evil second-in-command to King Xerxes, the ruler of this vast Persian empire, has been shamed. He's on the way to being canceled. His shame has been advertised on social media, although... He alone feels it because he's been forced as the one who wants to be honored by the king, who wants and craves like oxygen to be adulated by all. He has been forced to walk Mordecai, the Jew, whose demise he was committed to. He's been forced to walk him around the whole town of Susa, saying with the king's robe on him, and on riding on the king's horse with the king's seal on his nose. This is what is done for the man the king delights to honor. He comes home from that enterprise where he has been completely humiliated and completely forlorn. And his wife says, your downfall has started. Or as Michael Scott might say, my, how the turntables have He gets his 
syllables mangled from sometimes. Sometimes he gets his expressions mixed up, but he meant to say how the tables have turned, but he says, hey, my, how the turntables have. But the tables have turned suddenly. Eamon thought everything was looking up. His future so bright, he had to wear shades. And now everything's starting to turn. Mordecai's been honored because of a sleepless night. A sleepless night is his undoing? A reading of the minutes of his reign, and he realizes that Mordecai had not been honored as he properly should for dispelling and bringing to the attention of the king a conspiracy plot. But there's a kind of recognition here. Haman's wife says, you're not going to be able to stand against him because he's a Jew. We're not told what that means, but there's this sense, there's this recognition, and she's certainly speaking with truth because our God, who is Mordecai's God, who is Esther's God, identifies with his people. And he has long said that those who curse you, I will curse. And those who lay a finger on you, they're going to do with me. God does not leave his people defenseless. And so she knows that the tables indeed have turned. And no sooner has she said that than Haman is called to this second banquet with Queen Esther and King Xerxes where they are drinking wine from the Napa Valley. No two-buck chuck here. And as they're drinking, the king says, the suspense is killing me. I couldn't sleep last night. What is it that you want? Eh, maybe he said that, but he says, what is it? What's the request? She's prolonged. She's a master of statesmanship, Queen Esther. What is your petition? Even up to half the kingdom, I'll give it to you. And she says, oh, king, if I found favor in your sight, if you are really pleased with me, grant my request. Spare my life and spare the life of my people. For the first time in this whole episode as she has come to the king, Esther's hidden identity. She's tried to blend into the woodwork. She's wanted no one to know that she was a Jewess, that she was of the people of God. Now she is coming into her identity, and she is bold. She's finding favor with the king. She's here, out, here on out called Queen Esther. She's addressed not just as Esther, but as Queen Esther throughout the rest of the story. And she elaborates when I say, I want to be spared of my life since you love me, since you favor me, and spare my people's life. For we have been sold for destruction and slaughter and annihilation. If we had just been sold as slaves, I wouldn't even have bothered you with it. It wouldn't have been that big of a deal. We would have just taken it. King Xerxes, like a cartoon character. Where is he? Where is he? I'll rip him to shreds. He freaks out. As we've said before, he misses a lot of things. And he doesn't realize that he himself has just a couple of months ago signed an edict or endorsed an edict for Haman to elicit a genocidal action to eradicate all the Jews in the empire. He says, who did it? Where is this man? He doesn't know that Esther's a Jew. 
And Esther says the adversary, the enemy, is this vile Haman. And it says Haman was terrified before the king and the queen and King Xerxes. You must imagine is a little freaked out. He's furious. Maybe he's piecing it together. I don't even and he just storms out of the room. Maybe you've done that before. He doesn't know what to say. He's just furious. He's stuck. He's, he's issued an irrevocable decree. Maybe not even realize that that's what Haman is doing. Maybe it's not realizing that it was a Jew's, certainly not realizing that his wife, who he's now come to see with favor and is calling the queen, when formerly she's just part of the harem, just being used or just being forgotten. He finally comes back in, but meanwhile, back at the ranch, Haman is in the room and realizes his only chance of salvation is if he pleads to Esther. She's asked for his demise. She's calling him on his wickedness. And so she, he thinks, well, I'll just plead to her for mercy. And he, and he pleads with her. She's reclining on a couch, you know. You've seen Cleopatra or something. And the king comes in at about that time. And some of the Jewish rabbis and their interpretation of this passage intuit that they, they, they imagine that the angel Gabriel has pushed Haman over onto her. Because when he, you know, I mean, that's speculation, right? But that would be really cool if that had happened. <laughs> but whatever happens... Somehow or another, Haman, in trying to plead for mercy to this reclining Esther on the couch, he stumbles, and it looks like he's getting fresh with her. He's trying to make the moves on her. And King Xerxes comes in and says, What? Keep your dang hands off my wife. <laughs> like H.I. McDonough. In Raising Arizona, if you haven't seen that, consider yourself culturally impoverished. <laughs> and so he has an out. He has an object. Not only has Haman done this terrible thing to the people of God and to his wife by eradicating or having a decree to eradicate them, now he's even laying hands on his wife. They cover his face. They take him out. And the attendant to the king says, oh, fortuitously enough, Haman just had built a large 75-foot gallows or impaling pole, whichever, you know, whichever translation you want to go with here, some kind of means of capital and punishment that's really vocal and loud and big so everyone can see it. And it's right beside his house. And he had done it for Mordecai. You know, Mordecai, the one who saved your life. You know, Mordecai, the one that you dishonored. You know, Mordecai, the one you couldn't sleep the other night and you realized you had failed to honor him and you want to make sure you honor people who saved your life so that everyone keeps saving your life. And the king says, oh, fantastic, that's perfect. We'll just let Mordecai be off the hook. We'll promote him to second in charge and we will let Haman be killed on the capital punishment tool that he has built for his enemy. Ha, ha, ha. And the king's fury subsides. 
He is put to death. The enemy of God's people is put to death. I want to pause for just a second and help you recognize something here. When I say that God keeps his promises in mind, the enemies of God, wherever God's people gather, there will be enemies. He predicted it in Genesis. He predicted that there was going to be a perennial and pervasive enmity between the image of God and an enemy of God. He will strike your heel and you will crush his head. <coughs> and the very first people after the Israelites were heading into the promised land to mess, the very, uh, the very first people to mess with the Israelites were the Amalekites. King Agag. And King Saul was supposed to destroy Agag. This was in the promised land. This was, out, this, was uh, before, this was after Joseph. And so one of the things that happens, I got my stories mixed up here, but one of the things that happens is that holy war is announced. The enemies of God are supposed to be destroyed in the land because all evil has to be eradicated in the place where God is going to dwell. And so King Saul is told, eradicate all of the Amalekites. They have messed with God's people. They have been cruel to them. And now they will be punished for their wickedness. From the, all the animals, all the kings, all the people, everybody eradicated. And Saul and his men destroy all of them except for Agag and some of the choicest animals. It's what makes Saul leave or lose his kingdom. And so Agag, well, Haman is called an Agagite. The Amalekites become, or the Agagites become a kind of name, a kind of type for the enemies of God that stand for the enemies of God. And Mordecai is a son of Kish, which is to say a son of Saul. And so that the business that Saul was supposed to take care of in destroying the enemies of God, now Haman is in the position to be destroyed as an Agagite and his nemesis, Mordecai, on God's side, presides the care of God's people by the eradication of his enemies. So they get back to business. And after Haman's death, Queen Esther comes back into the king's presence, but not before she has been put in charge of everything that Haman owned. And so Mordecai is promoted to second in charge. She gives Mordecai control over all of Haman's property and all his possessions. There's been a complete reversal. Not just stopping Haman, but giving all his stuff to his enemy, God's person. And Esther falls again at the feet of the king, weeps and pleads, begging him, please put an end to the evil plan of Haman the Agagite, which he has devised against the Jews. And then the king extends the gold scepter to Esther, and she rose and stood before him. And the king allows Mordecai, who was formerly the object of scorn, and part of the people who were going to be eradicated to write an edict with the king's signet ring to go out to all the people and even to the Jews in their own language 
saying that like in the state of Georgia, there's a stand-your-ground law now. And if anybody attacks you, you can bow up back at them. You can arm yourselves and you can destroy those who destroy you. And it's announced to everybody so that people know a fight's a-coming. It's not just a one-sided eradication, but now the Jews can fight back. And we're told at the end that the city was elated because of the provision that had been made for them. This turning of the tables, this elevation of Mordecai and Esther on their side, and now the Jews can fight. And it says that fear of the Jews seized many people, and many of them became Jews, which is also an interesting twist. So that's where this chapter ends. I'm going to point out, as we've been doing, we tell these stories, a couple of quick things here. One, God could have just called off the attack to save his people. God could have just caused something bad to Haman and just said, let's just not do this. But that's not what he did. He didn't just maintain the status quo and like stop the attack. He actually starts a reversal of fortune. He starts to put down his enemies and starts to raise up his people, which is what he has pledged to them that he will do. The Apostle Paul says that every promise that has been made in, from God is answered yes in Christ. And one of the things that we see as we watch God do this reversal, and he does it with a, a great deal of attention, as I said earlier, to detail. Earlier, Mordecai was in sackcloth and ashes. At the end of this chapter, he comes out into the city, and he's wearing blue and white and a gold crown and a purple linen robe from Banana Republic. He's dressed in royal garb when he was formerly dressed in the garb of mourning. He was to be eradicated, and now he's elevated to second in command. The one who had all the stuff and all the power and all the right to destroy the Jews has himself been destroyed. The Jews who were going to be pulverized have been given permission and warning to the nations that God's on their side, and that they're going to fight back now. God is taking care of all these little details. He's reversing thing after thing after thing, flipping things right side up. It's one of the things that throughout the scriptures, if you ever hang out in the Psalms, there's always this clamor. Why does it look like the wicked are winning? Why does it look like those who have no room in their mind for God? They don't give God the time of day. Why are they winning? Why are we losing? Why do I suffer every day and have so much sorrow in my heart every day? And why does unrighteousness seem to prevail? Why do people who don't love God have such shiny teeth and such good complexions and full heads of hair? Here I've lost my hair and I've got bad skin. But God is setting things right and that is the, the promise and this fulfillment of God's people in Christ. That when he 
Instead of being the evil one like Haman to face death, when he faced death for us, we're told that he started a reversal. The greatest reversal of all, that death became life. And the fear that we all have of death is to be eradicated because he has tasted it for everyone who believes in him. Passing from death into life and the, the hope of new heaven, the hope of resurrection that he brings about is this hope of reversal that God is going to make up everything. Everything you've lost, everything you pine for is going to be made up to you. The years the locusts have eaten are going to be restored. It's not just that you're not going to keep losing. It's that all your loss is going to turn to gain. And sometimes you get little tastes of that in this life. Sometimes you get little whiffs and hints and expressions of it in this life. And it's a joyous matter. The Israelites, the, the Hebrews spread out, the Judahites, I guess they'd be called there, in Persia, got a taste of this, and their mourning was turned to gladness because God had acted in a very particular way. Marilyn Robinson, perceptive as she always is, said, memory is the sense of loss, and loss pulls us after it. God himself was pulled after us into the vortex we made when we fell or so the story goes. And while he was on earth, he mended families. He gave Lazarus back to his mother. And to the centurion, he gave his daughter again. He even restored the severed ear of the soldier who came to arrest him. A fact that allows us to hope that the resurrection will reflect a considerable attention to detail. That's where I got the line. God in flesh, as he's come to fulfill all the promises of God, as he's come to be Israel and to incorporate his people and to build his kingdom on earth and to reverse death and to liberate us from all our enemies including the enemy of the shackling sin that would make us think we're our own masters and drive us to the ground and make us not offer our own hope or our own best hope. That while he was on the earth, he took particular care. The restoration he brought was about this particular person and their unseeing eye. About this particular soldier who had his ear lopped off and his ear being attached back. This particular widow whose son had died and her giving, her receiving back from the dead her son. If you've had any loss of any sort, if you've had any pain of any sort, which is, I'm just going to tell you right now, I'm not a prophet, but you have because you're alive. If you haven't, you're just dead and you don't know. The fact that God pays such attention to detail the hairs on your head means that just as he is authoring this salvation for the Jews in Persia through sleepless nights, through requests of a queen, through one Jew in the harem, a sex slave who becomes a queen with influence on the king, between one mourning father who 
happens to hear a conspiracy plot and saves the king's life. Through all this happenstance, blind pigs finding acorns, squirrels on meth, squirting this way and that, darting this way and that, but being saved nonetheless because forces greater than them are interested in their salvation. And that Christ in our flesh, bearing our pain, bearing our sorrow, he goes to the Father and says, their demise is too unbearable for me, like Esther went to the king. And so he is going to restore every out-of-a-line detail of your life. Some of it, like I said, will happen now, and some of it will happen later. But it has to be with him, who has conquered death, who has tasted it for us and offers us the right to go through it. God's reversal involves a considerable attention to detail. And also, these promises of God that are lingering, not one of which ever falls to the ground, says Samuel. These promises of God that linger and they get fulfilled in Esther by the salvation of his people. They get fulfilled in the coming of Christ and they will be fulfilled in your life as well. They happen because of the Savior's considerable heart for the people he makes promises to. Esther pleads with the king. She goes to bat for her people. She identifies with them and says, it would be unbearable for me, for my people to face this judgment. It would be unbearable. It would be simply unimaginable if this fate happened to them. I've got to have you intercede. And can you think of what Jesus did on the week of his death, as he walked into the holy city and he looked out over Jerusalem, the people who have been scorning him, the people who have been maligning him, the people who have been saying mean things about him on Twitter, like, eh, he has a demon. He's demon-possessed. The people who have been attacking him for his violations of Sabbath, you know, doing all these wicked, vile things like helping people walk and helping them see and restoring their hearing back to them on the Sabbath. <coughs> he looks out over this whole vast city. He came to that which was his own, but his own received him not, to the saddest words in the Bible, says a professor of mine. And he felt the sadness he was about to be destroyed. He was about to absorb the sorrows and take the wrath. And the one man die for the many so the many would not die. And he looked out over them. And what did he do for his enemies? He didn't arm up with an AR-15. He didn't send a drone over them. He wept for them. His heart burst for them. Oh, Jerusalem, oh, Jerusalem, you who stone the prophets, you who fight against those who come to save you, how I have longed to gather you up like a mother hen, scooping you up under my wings, how I've longed to give you safety, how I've longed to give you protection, how I've longed to give you 
Welcome, how I've longed to be your refuge. But you were not willing. And now judgment's coming. In our men's meeting on Thursday, we're doing the great divorce. Someone told me that Thursday was the best teaching they've ever heard in their whole entire life. I'm just saying. So if you want, I'm just kidding. No one said that. Don't believe me. No one said that. But one of the interesting things in this story is that there's these people in hell and they get a bus ride to heaven. Every single one of them, when offered heaven, they all find a reason not to go in. And Jesus weeps. When you think of Jesus, if you don't think of someone who weeps over those who reject him, including the moments when you and I do, then you've not conceived him rightly. People will face judgment by continuing to stiff arm him, but man, oh man, is he patient. That's why he's not come back, because he's not willing for us to perish. He wants many to come to repentance. He wants many to receive his promises, to receive his forgiveness, to be released from their resentment, to be undone from the thing that shackles them, to be broken of the yoke that holds them so they can walk with their heads held high, not controlled anymore by something that is not them. To be restored to the full image of God. The story that Wendell Berry tells of a man who's not in his right mind. He becomes a danger to himself. He becomes perhaps a danger to others. The men in town do not know, but he, he wanders out into the night. And the men in town care about him too much to let him wander by himself, and they don't know what's going to happen. So they, they traipse through the woods looking for him, trying to find him, trying to intercept him from himself. They look for him all night. They wander through hollows and up hills and through brush and tree, through the dark night sky. And at last, they find him. They, they capture him, and he's still alive, and he's... There's hope because they feel like they can salvage him now that they've got him wrapped up in their care. And after a long journey, after a long, hard, arduous task, you might know the feeling they were exhausted. They were hungry. And word is sent to them that the women have a big dinner prepared. It's waiting for him on the table. And one of the old men in their midst says, Oh, fellas, come on. We have been kept in mind. We have been kept in mind. While we were laboring, there was a supper being made for us. While we were working up an appetite, an appetite full of sorrow, full of exhaustion, there has been someone who cared about us, who was not with us, and they were whipping up a supper to make everything well, to satisfy our bellies and to replenish our souls, we have been kept in mind. And when you see Jesus weeping over a city, and you see Jesus going to death on a cross, and you see Jesus raising to life and saying, whoever will come to me, I will never turn away. And you hear Jude saying of the people of God, you are those who are kept by Jesus Christ guarded by him, 
kept in mind. And when you hear the story of Esther with all the considerable attention to detail, God moving the chess pieces, working out every evil to turn it to good so that his promises can be realized, the promises in his head because of the people in his heart who are kept in mind. You are kept in mind. And he invites you to his supper. He invites you to be nourished. He invites you over and over again to receive the life, to receive the freedom, to receive that heart who weeps at your absence, but who we're told rejoices at your turning to come back. The father ran after the prodigal son, and he couldn't even hear his confession, so busy was he in wrapping his arms around him and throwing a feast for him. You, like Esther and Mordecai and the Jews scattered throughout Persia, have been kept in mind. Oh, come to him. Keep coming to the one who keeps you in mind. He's paying attention to all the details, and he's going to work them all out. Some now, some eventually. Do not ignore him who keeps you in mind. Amen.